Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking to Fairport Convention member and solo artist Richard Thompson about his career and memoir. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. But first, we review some new music from Chicago punk rock legends Naked Raygun and an album from Americana artist Amethyst Kia. Greg, that guitar, that bass, those drums, Jeff Pizzotti, Naked Raygun, a new song called Broken Things from their first album in three decades, Over the Overlords. Naked Raygun is a band that has meant an awful lot to the two of us uh, since its heyday in the mid-80s. Five incredibly strong albums between 1985 and 1990, Throb, throb to Raygun, Naked Raygun. And then the band, I guess we used to say broke up, but now we should say they went on hiatus. A very long hiatus. Mm. They came back for two reunion shows in 1997. Um, 2006, they came back for another and said, we are back for good. But they have been very low-key, aside from occasional performances, including the biggest of their career, when Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, a huge fan, had them open uh, at uh, Wrigley Field. Uh, they've, they've apparently been making this album for about a decade. Uh, their longtime bassist, Pierre Kesdi, died of cancer in October 2020, uh, but he is on this new album. The album was finished, and now the album is here, released with an incredible uh, amount of uh, no hype. None. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I keep right. getting emails from friends saying, there's a new Naked Raygun album? It is uh, one of the longtime lineups. Three of the members are from those golden years. Jeff Pizzotti on vocals, Eric Spicer on drums, uh, Pierre Kesdi, as I said, played a uh, bass on this album. And Bill Stevens, you know, he's still the new guy, uh, only been around since 1990 with that last album of the first run. Uh, what are they giving us? Let's play a song from Over the Overlords and we'll give our reviews. This is Living in the Good Times by Naked Raygun.
That is Living in the Good Times from Naked Ray Gun. Over the Overlords is the name of the record, as Jim pointed out. What else to say about them other than that they were one of the most influential bands of the 80s? Certainly hugely influential band locally, hugely influential band on a national scale. You can draw a straight line from them to Nirvana and the whole alternative rock explosion of the mm-hmm. early 90s. Except they were never making any money. They didn't make that much. <laughs> no, they didn't. But they have persevered. Uh, a lot of health issues in the, in, the, in the band. Here they are making a new record. Living in the good times. Um, you know, I, the only thing that it lacked was a whoa, whoa, whoa kind of uh, harmony vocal in it. But otherwise, it is a classic naked, naked Ray Gun punk pop anthem. Broken Things too is another song very much in the vein of 80s Naked Ray Gun. I was going to say Living in the Good Times, same thing. And if they had given us an entire album of just those kind of songs, it would have been great. I mean, it would have been like there was nothing wrong with those 80s albums. Those albums still hold up over time. Punchy, melodic, hard-hitting songs with something to say. Pizzotti remains a social political philosopher from a blue-collar perspective. Yeah, He's yeah. always talking about stuff that is not, you know, conventional love yeah. songs in any Installs any air conditioning equipment yeah. well, for, for industry, you know. I mean, that, that, these were blue-collar Chicago yeah. guys. And Pizzotti's also got a great singing voice. I, I compare him to somebody like uh, Robin Zander of Cheap Trick. The guy oh, yeah. seems almost ageless in the way he sounds like Jeff Pizzotti. He's still got a very strong, potent voice. But what I like about this record is they could have made just another album of anthems just like they did back in the 80s, and they made another album of anthems, but they're playing around with the template now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're starting to hear, hear things like that Middle Eastern tonality that they bring to Suicide Bomb, you know, those, yeah. the, that choir effect. I will not be, I will not be your Suicide Bomb, I will not be your Suicide Uh, black and gray. Where are these orchestral uh, arrangements I coming know. from? A little bit of a metal chug in that song. What, what, what about the tribute to Pierre, Soul Hole Baby? Yeah. I mean, there's a little bass solo, and man, that and guy it, was great. And then it cranks out uh, into that sort of chaotic finish. It's yeah. like a two-part song where you get the dirge eulogy mm-hmm. part, and then you get this kind of cathartic moment at the end. Farewell to arms. The horns. You know, yeah. naked horns. Right with horns on it. Well, Jeff always had a little mod in him. He had this side band in the uh, 90s called The Bomb. 
so yeah, there's a little bit of a, dare so, I say pseudo ska mod. Well, well, Jim, I, I think they they've sort of expanded what they do arrangement wise without losing sight of who they are, yeah. which is a great band. I mean, in the '80s, why was it Naked Reagan? We were in the middle of the Reagan era. Now they are looking out from the perspective of the Trump years without ever being preachy, while always being melodic. I will even say, I think after the Buzzcocks, who were always mm. huge heroes to Naked Reagan, I don't think there's been a punk band that's ever been as melodically melodic, yeah. into. I mean, just and and I, I went to this record with trepidation, you know, oh, yeah. because I as don't want to always do with decades long you, you know, hiatus, right? We don't want to live in the past, yeah. and we don't want them to let us down. They didn't. It's a great record, and the fact that you don't even know it's out there yet, most of you listeners, give it a spin. That's a track called Fancy Drones, Fracture Me, from Amethyst Kia. Her first widely distributed solo record called Wary and Strange. Amethyst Kia, some of you may know that name. She was in somewhat of a, a bluegrass supergroup, if there can be such a thing, a few years ago with Rhiannon Giddens. The name of the group was Our Native Daughters. They got nominated for a Grammy. I first got wind of Kia's talent on that record. She had a standout song called Black Myself, which we are about to play again because it's from her new record. She kind of redoes that song. Completely reimagined. You know, then I did a little research on her. Her first solo record was a very alternative rock uh, approach to music. She was playing... You know, she was a an alt rocker for better, sure, uh, uh, lack of a better term. A Stone Temple Pilots fan, yeah. she has said. A little bit of Radiohead in there. So this was around 2013, and then digging back into her roots, she's a gay African American woman growing up in Tennessee, with all of the uh, biases you can imagine growing up in that environment, trying to form an identity that was not conforming to the typical template of what you should sound like, what kind of yeah. a musician you should be. So now we have Wearing and Strange, a record she made with uh, Tony Berg, a producer who has worked with people like Phoebe Bridgers and Amy Mann. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play her new version of Black Myself from Amethyst Kia's Wary and Strange on Sound Opinions. Myself from Wary and Strange, the new album by Amethyst Kia. Wow. Uh, I pick up the banjo and they sneer at me. She's a, a virtuoso banjo player because uh, I'm black myself. You better lock your doors when I walk 
by because I'm black myself. A, a very powerful song, Greg. You were going to highlight Amethyst Kia as a uh, buried treasure, and we both decided, no, 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 this deserves a full review. We both want away, and we are both fans of this music. I think after the great Brittany Howard in Alabama Shakes, this is uh, one of the most important uh, voices and best and most passionate souls in the, uh, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, Americana genre, mm-hmm. playing American roots music. A little country, a little rock and roll, a little soul, a little gospel I hear every once in a while. And, you know, showing a really impressive range that... Uh, Ballad of Lost is exactly that, a slow and beautiful ballad. Absolutely enchanting. We have other tracks that have a significant amount of anger. Black Myself, as opposed to the earlier version she did with Giddens, is kind of reimagined as a as a Southern rock song. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, she's not going to let those old guys with the uh, pickup trucks and the gun racks own this genre. It's hers, too. She grew up in Tennessee. She has a lot to say and a voice that is very much worth listening to. This is, this is one of the strongest albums I've heard this year. Well, she's got an amazing voice, first of all, and that is at the center of this record. I also think that Tony Berg, um, you know, working with him, opened up her sound, allowed her to be herself. Because uh, she's talked about this idea, like, well, I made this kind of rockish record, and then I made this very bluegrassy record, and why can't I be all of those things and more? Yeah. You know, why can't I put all of that together in a record? And he goes, yeah, why not? Let's do that. Uh, it took him two attempts to make this record the way she wanted to make it. The initial one was very conservative. The second swipe through the record, they started mixing up these sounds in a way that was really fascinating. Fancy drones fracture me. That, you know, what is that genre? What you I, know? Yeah. And, and you know, you've got this sort of finger picked guitar over that walloping thick bottom that's sort of lurching along, and then you've got this sort of floating quality. Is it keyboards? I understand there's something. There's a bass harmonica in there. In fact, a lot of these songs have this sense of there's something more going on than just the voice and guitar. There's almost like this sense of ghosts floating around, these specters. Uh, well, she's talking uh, a lot about loss. In there's there's literal ghosts. I mean, her mother was a victim of suicide. Her father suffered from drug addiction. She's had a lot of loss in her life. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I think she's uh, talking about that on a lot of these songs, the whole idea of betrayal and loss and, you know, uh, you know finding solace in booze, self-medicating. Yeah. dire quality about some of the, the, the songs, about the lyrics in some of the songs, but at the same time there's a strength in that voice. And you know, she, there's a reason uh, that she frames the record with those soapbox songs. You know, yeah. uh, there's, there's soapbox and then the soapbox repeats, where she talks about don't, I don't want to hear how you would do it. Yeah. I know how to do yeah. it. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. be myself. I'm going to be allowed to be myself for maybe the first time in my life. Don't want to hear your soapbox speech. want to know how you would do it. want to know how it should be. Because I don't care what you think. You can keep 
you know, I'm, and I'm really glad that you did uh, Black Myself because that's a song that deserves a huge audience. It's one of the most powerful uh, anthems of self-empowerment and self-realization of the last four or five years. Great stuff, Greg. That's what we thought about the latest from Amethyst Kia and Naked Raygun, two records, Greg, that our listeners were eager for us to review. As always, we want to hear from them. Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Next, we've got a conversation with British folk rock legend Richard Thompson on Sound Opinions. She was a rare thing as a bee's wing So fine that I might crush her when she lay She was a lost child She was running wild She said as long as there's no price on love I'll stay And you wouldn't want me any other way Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. Him over there, he's Greg Cott. That is a little bit of the song Bee's Wing by our guest this week, Richard Thompson, returning to Sound Opinions. He was, of course, a key member in the British folk rock revival of the 60s with his group, Fairport Convention, and he's been a talented solo artist for many years after that with uh, some incredible 20 studio albums to his name. And to all those accomplishments, Greg, we can now add engaging author. (laughs) No doubt, Jim. Uh, He turns out to be a great writer in addition to being a great songwriter. Earlier this year, he released his memoir, Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice. Greg, it's a good day at Sound Opinions when we have a guest we're as excited about as Richard Thompson. Although, Richard, it is not quite as good a day as the last time you were on our show when you sat with us with your guitar. Mm. And back when we could all be in a room, it was wonderful. Uh, Remember those days? Those were the days. Remember those, those days? days? Uh, I do, fondly. But, uh, but we have Richard Thompson on the show to talk about not a new album, Greg, a new book, Bee's Wing. It is a fascinating uh, book. It is very much like sitting with you and hearing the stories of the early days of Fairport Convention and how you came to love and discover music. You're covering 67 to 75, uh, but there's, there's a, you know, a little bit before that, too. Why don't we start at the beginning? I just fell in love. I was laughing and also kind of a tear in my eye about your first guitars. You were eager to get your hand on one of these instruments, and and you kept getting these toy cowboy tin guitars (laughs) early on (laughs) that you would instantly destroy. Well, I, well, I think that they were built to be destroyed. Basically, you know, they were they were literally toys um, that my parents would continue to fob me off with um, thinking I wasn't really serious but I was serious I was absolutely serious finally you know a guitar turned up in the house when I was about 10 years old that I think my father was, thought he was going to play and then my sister thought she was going to play it but but I knew it was my destiny to get my hands on that guitar so I did I, I commandeered it and that set me off on the road I love that you're very self-deprecating in the book. I would love to have been in the room when that music teacher called you a musical no-hoper. Um, <laughs> was, there, was there ever like a comeuppance moment uh, where you 
got some communication with that person years later and said, well, by the way, I did okay, despite your low opinion of my musical abilities. <laughs> there was no comeuppance. Life is often kind enough to wonder that uh, you get away with things, you know, and things disappear into the rearview mirror and uh, become basically forgotten until you start writing a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it all comes but back. But you weren't, you weren't discouraged by the... By the fact I, I think more, more, more encouraged, strangely enough. I, I, I think it kind of, uh, you know, I think it pushes you rather than mm-hmm. stops you. It, it depends the kind of person you are. I, I refuse to be stopped. Yeah. I'll show them. I'll show him. I'll, exactly. I'll yeah. show them. You, you came up uh, in the 60s, as a, you know, we mentioned, and you know, the book starts in 67. You're, you're around 20 years old at the time, right? Whatever, a little younger. Uh, I, I'm 18. 18. I'm 18 yeah. in 67. Teenager. Yeah. And um, you had to be one of the few guitarists in London that wasn't completely smitten with Chicago blues and wanted to imitate Buddy Guy or, or uh, you know, any of the great blues guitarists, Otis Rush. You were, you were doing your own thing. And I just wondered how, to me, that has held up very well. That was a very smart decision. You were very distinctive, and to this day you still are. But back then, everybody else around you was doing this thing, and you were the guy that seemed to be not doing it. How, how did you manage to resist that? It was a crowded field. There were so many British blues guitar players. There's the famous ones. There was Eric and, and, and Jeff Beck and, and Jimmy Page and, and Mick Taylor and all, all those, you know, and Peter Green. But um, there were also local ones. I mean, just down the street, there, there were, you know, local guitar legends, you know, hammering out the blues. And, and I thought, you know, is this what I want to do? You know, do, do I want to be yet another blues guitar player from Britain? I always felt, you know, slightly secondhand anyway. I wasn't growing up in Chicago, you know. Uh, everything was learned off a record. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, when Hendrix turned up in London, he was a guy who could really, really play the blues extremely well. Uh, and he was like the real thing. And, and uh, I, I think the other guitar players at that point had to look at each other and say, oh, gosh, uh, <laughs> this is something, you know, authentic. This, this is learned from the source rather than from from a record. So, you know, I, I think from about the age of... You know, 16 onwards, I, I thought I want to be something a bit different. So, so I started to listen to classical music. I started listening to jazz. And I started to hang out in folk clubs, listen to folk music. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, in uh, whatever year it was, 69, Fairport made this big decision to make this album of British traditional music played with amplified instruments and drums. Uh, and that was a kind of watershed, really, uh, for us. And in many ways, we didn't look back after that. That was a brave decision in in a lot of ways, uh, Richard, at a point where everything was about the future, the present and the future, you know, a psychedelic Mm. moment, and we're all moving uh, to brave new uncharted lands, journeying toward the white light. Um, You were, uh, (laughs) and your your mates in, in Fairport, were looking at music that was centuries old. You know, and saying, how does this relate to us now? As a result, I think, uh, whereas some records from that era sound very dated, you know, there was a timelessness to the Fairport recordings then that remains now. But you were looking back instead of forward, like so many of your peers. 
Well, sometimes it, you do look back to go forwards. We were thinking that this was probably the most groundbreaking thing that we could do. You know, when I was at school, I was really into art theory. I was really into John Cage. I was into, you know, modern classical music like Stockhausen, uh, Ligeti, all, all this this kind of kind of very dissonant, abstract stuff. And at the, at the point that Fairport made this decision, I, I thought I thought this is the most revolutionary thing that we could do at this time. This is more revolutionary than, than Roxy music, you mm. know, being, I think, having a sort of tongue-in-cheek take on popular music. You know, it, it's more revolutionary than the Velvet Underground. It's more revolutionary than, than David Bowie. Uh, we really thought this was the most groundbreaking thing that we could do. Yeah. You know, when I think about the folk movement in, uh, in America, you know, people point back to, like, the, the, the Holy Grail was the Harry Smith folk anthology. Like everybody mm. was of a certain age was listening to that record and saying, wow, there's great stuff here to mine, uh, including Dylan. But what was the equivalent of that in England? Was there something like that, that, you know, you and Shirley Collins and Ann Briggs and Sandy Denny, there was a small pocket of people that seemed to be really into this stuff. What was yeah, it? It was more... Um Really to try, trying to find uh, th- those songs at the source. It was a dangerous time for folk music because uh, it, in certain parts of England, it was almost gone, obliterated by, you know, I, I think after World War II, as the agricultural life became more rarefied, more people moved to the towns, there was a real danger that all these old songs were going to disappear. So... Um, People like Shirley Collins uh, would go out collecting songs. Uh, they go visiting local singers and, and they write the songs down or, or, or they tape record them. And uh, this, this was another revival. that There'd been a big folk music revival at the turn of the last century uh, in 1900 uh, where people like Cecil Sharp went out um, collecting songs for the same reason because he thought uh, the, song, the so- songs and dance of England were in danger. Mm-hmm. Of disappearing, so, so Shirley was was doing the same kind of thing. Uh, people like Ewan McCall, A.L. Lloyd were were all trying to re- revive this music, keep it alive, and really, you know, the folk rockers like Fairport were, were kind of piggybacking uh, on top of that movement. Just a, a decade later, we relied a lot on the few recordings that there were. And we re- relied on written sources sometimes for songs. Uh, a song like Sir Patrick Spencer that Fairport covered. Well, we didn't really know what the tune was. It's such an old song that, that it's so rarely actually sung that, that we kind of uh, used a tune from another song to, mm. to sing that. Right? <laughs> so we had the text and, and we had to figure out a, a way to re- revive it and make it into something singable. The kings that sinned on farms and town Drinking of the blood red wine Where can I get a steaming skipper To send this mighty boat of mine And how did you integrate? I mean, I think the great innovation was uh, Simon Nicole once said, uh, you know, we're going to electrocute these songs. Uh, bringing the electric guitar into that vocabulary of these traditional instruments. I mean, that to me is the real trick. How do you do that? I mean, was that something that was very organic for you? Like it made sense from the start? Or did you have to really work to figure out a way that those instruments were going to blend? We, we had to think about it. Um, and some songs worked and some songs didn't work, uh, which we found out very quickly, in fact. As an electric guitar player, um, you know, I was thinking, well, I, I need to be more like a fiddle. I, I need to be more like a, a melodeon or, or an accordion. I, I need to be playing more single notes. 
uh, and uh, playing unison with with the fiddle sometimes. We're trying to think, well, don't just think cordially about this song. Think about it as a drone. Think about it as something that exists in more than one key at once, which a lot of folk music does. So sometimes it's hard to define if a, if a song is, is in E or A or D. In, in a sense, it's in all keys at the same time. Um, so yeah, you had to kind of have that in the background when you were working on songs. albums i mean what a year 69 was right what what we did on our holidays uh unhalf breaking and, and leash and leave uh were just these groundbreaking records with with sandy denny and um and then you fired her at the end of the year <laughs> which i think is one of the revelations of the book i hope i'm not you know speaking out of turn here but i mean it was <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert it's it's you're quite, giving it all away you're giving it all away quite a revelation well, I mean, we, we fired her, but she was kind of gone anyway. Um, that was how we felt, you know, really, uh, that she wasn't likely to stick around much longer the way things were going. Uh, also, you know, but remember that we had just uh, had this, this uh, accident where we lost our drama. Yeah. And we were still, at that point, uh, you know, shell-shocked, really. Um, we were still suffering from a really PTSD, I suppose. And, and uh, we weren't thinking straight. Had we been uh, in a better frame of mind, I'm sure Stanley would have stayed in the band, and who knows what the history would have been in a, in a, in a different universe like that. But um, as it was, it was a passing of the ways, and it was kind of tragic in, in retrospect, but um, it, it's what happened. And Sandy went on to form a great band. Uh, Ashley went on to form a couple of great bands. So in some ways, perhaps that, that gave them the freedom to do what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Richard, I want to ask you about the bus crash in 1969. It severely injured you and several other band members, and it killed Fairport drummer Martin Lamble and your girlfriend at the time, Jeannie Franklin. What a thing to go through at such a young age and so early in the career of the band. Uh, Many groups would never have recovered. I think we took a long time thinking about whether it was worth the price of that kind of tragedy. You said and, you, you, um, would, you would break down in tears at times when you were writing that section. Yeah, it was very difficult to write. It, it was harder to to read the audio book, which I mm. just did. Um, that was that was really tough. I really had to pretend this is about somebody else. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm just telling a story. I, I, I can get through this, but, but I had to stop frequently. Um, yeah, it's it's tough. Still traumatic to this day. And... Um, yeah, you know, I talk sometimes to the other survivors, uh, to, to Simon Nichol and Ashley Hutchings, and, and uh, well, we all feel the same. It, it was such a tragic thing to happen that it touches us today, and, and we don't forget those people. Yeah. You know, they're in our thoughts all the time. Yeah. After the break, we'll continue our conversation with Richard Thompson and discuss the work he did with his ex-wife and music partner, Linda Thompson, and how he has avoided musical burnout over his long career. That's next on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking with Richard Thompson about his career and memoir. Let's jump back into the conversation. 
I'm always fascinated by that psychedelic moment in in the UK, in the US. Uh, you know, you wind up uh, with a very fruitful partnership with Joe Boyd. He, you know, produced the uh, the Pink Floyd records, right? The earliest yeah. ones, you know. I, I, I'm wondering how the psychedelic consciousness uh, affected the music of Fairport. Because it was, it, you know, some people could say, oh, they're playing ancient folk songs. It's traditional music. But there was an awareness there. You said one of the key words earlier, the drones that made those old folk songs work. There was a psychedelic awareness, I've always thought, to uh, many of those Fairport records. Well, if you think um, a, a song like A Sailor's Life uh, on the Unhalfbricking record, uh, which is Fairport's you know, first real foray into traditional music, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's the point where we, we really successfully blended the, 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 the two um, musical styles. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a real jam on on that song that, that wouldn't be out of place in, in, in a psychedelic club in London, you know, in 1967, 68, 69. We That was absolutely, you know, the, the milieu for, for, for that kind of music. Um, uh, I've seen other people describe it as, as being like a rug, like an Indian rug, yeah. the, 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 way, the way it's constructed. And again, that wasn't really in our thoughts. Well, we weren't really thinking in those terms. We just thought, this is something that we do anyway. We do these long instrumental passages, um, not that different from... You know, so some of the other bands around the London scene, you, you know, the Floyd would do yeah. long instrumental passages. Yeah. It was okay with the audience. The, the audience permitted it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, and, and so we kind of did it as well. So for us to play a song that was 10 minutes long was nothing unusual. Um, in a different age, if, if Fairport had emerged in, in, in 77 instead of 67, um, when it was all three-minute punk songs, uh, it, it might have been a very different kind of, of uh, blending of traditional and uh, electric. Mm. Yeah, I adored the the band for so many years, uh, Richard. And uh, you know, I, I went back to that 1970. Uh, I've got bootlegs galore from that 1970 American tour. Um, and one thing that struck me in the book, it just kind of highlighted that something we all kind of knew. But you were like the first so-called British invasion band not to be recycling the music that Americans had previously heard for their gratification, you know. Um, it was really a, a daring approach. And I, I get the sense that the reception was not, people weren't buying in or they were still having trouble, like, understanding what was going on here. I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize that, but what was your sense of the American audience in 1970 to, to what Fairport yeah, was doing? Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, slightly bemused, a bit of head scratching going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I think we go down politely without being, you know, extremely welcomed. Um, I'm thinking about the Fillmores, you know, just kind of a, like a stoned response, not, not, nothing too special. People not not really that engaged people were waiting for Jethro Tull or traffic to come on next, you know, really, really. Um, I mean, the breakthrough for us uh, was the Philadelphia Folk Festival, mm. 
where we absolutely stormed it. I, I mean, I don't think they'd seen anything quite like it, and, and we hadn't really seen anything like, like it outside of Britain, where you know the entire audience of, of 10,000 people were, were, were up and dancing. I mean, everybody was dancing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they actually gave us an encore, which, that, which was... Uh, not really in the folk tradition, you know. Uh, you're supposed to be, you know, a bit more socialist and, and, and uh, <laughs> n- nothing too special. So, uh, you know, encores are a bit bourgeois, but yeah. uh, they had to give us an encore. They absolutely had to give us an encore. So that that was uh, a real breakthrough. Uh, you know, I think we found our audience among among the folk fans rather than the rock fans. Uh, and interestingly, um, I, I think the, the African Americans uh, in the audience. Kind of dug what we were doing more than the white audience, which is which is very bizarre. But yeah. when you think about it, not so strange. I think they recognised that that we were not recycling their music. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You know the well, blues well, is the music yeah. of their ancestors. You're playing the music of of your ancestors. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, that they appreciated that. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. You don't advertise yourself a lot. You you say that, uh, which is why it was kind of a surprise for those of us who followed your career to know that this book was coming, Beeswing. And uh, it ends with the making of Shoot Out the Lights with your first wife, Linda, but not the tour, which a lot of people are grousing about. It is famously a difficult tour for both of you. But I saw something uh, great online. I believe The Guardian uh, emailed uh, Linda and said, uh, you know, what do you think about Richard writing a book? And uh, she said she was never worried. He, he's not one of these people that, you know, throws out all the dirt. She said she was eager to read it. I'm, quote, Sweet. I'm dying to know if, it's <laughs> as, if he's as good a book writer as he is a songwriter. I think that's incredibly uh, generous and a cool thing for an ex I mean, she knew she was going to be in there. Yeah, she's in there. I, I mean, the book truly stops in 1975. Mm-hmm. And every, everything after that is an afterword, really. Um, yeah. I'm just uh, tying loose ends for people, really. But, but, but yeah. it, it does take a chapter or two to, to tie those loose ends. So uh, I, I don't say anything about, you know, 76 to 81 particularly, because I, I think we made bad records, uh, and there's nothing I want to write about in that period. So, mm-hmm. you know, so I mentioned 81, I mentioned, uh, you know, our marriage breaking up. And really, I'm, I'm just catching up to, to, to that point. You know, volume six will deal with, with uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the AC1 tour, <laughs> yeah. if we get there. I mean, the music you made with her is extraordinary, and um, I think one of the things that was eye-opening for me was that period between you'd quit Fairport, you were a session musician, you know, you'd known Linda, but then you were starting to tour together in the folk clubs. Mm-hmm. And, and the folk clubs in that sort of very intimate environment, sometimes not even mic'd up, you said that's kind of where you found your voice, right? As a as a vocalist, at least, right? Yeah. Well, you know, you know folk clubs are, are, in many ways, a wonderful British institution. They have a kind of a formula where anybody 
can get up and sing by prior arrangement with, with the organizer. So, so it's a first place to sing in public for a lot of people. It's a place for, for people who are further down the road to uh, establish a repertoire, and mm -hmm. establish an audience. And it's a living for a whole range of acoustic musicians. Uh, you know, there's a whole tour circuit. It still exists, really, but yeah. it was uh, much bigger in the 60s and 70s. They're usually, you know, the upstairs room of a pub. They're kind of uh, the, the entertainment room in a pub. They might hold 50 people. They might hold 100. And mm -hmm. sometimes there's, no, there's hardly a stage. Sometimes there's hardly a PA. So you, you just get up and, and you sing. Any, anything shy about you or <laughs> arrogant about you? <laughs> or, or, or in other ways, kind of de defective about your personality. It's going to be found out very, very quickly by the audience because they're standing like a foot from your face, that they are absolutely right mm. there. So you, you better be honest, sincere uh, about your music and unpretentious about your music mm -hmm. and, ju and just get up there and belt it out as best you can. Simple, simple and plain is plain If you leave me now you won't come back again Well, it's interesting. I talked to uh, Linda years ago, mm. and uh, she said even in the best days of our marriage, you, you, you guys didn't really communicate that well. Uh, but I think that the reason the music was good is that we tended to save it for the work. And she was specifically re referencing the, the shootout, the lights record, but I think she was talking about in general mm -hmm. the, the way you collaborated. I mean, what's your, what's your take on, on what she said? Well, I think we did have a good working relationship. I think we both loved, you know, songwriting. Uh, we loved the song process. Uh, and I think we loved rehearsing. I, I think we, we loved developing songs. Um, but probably emotionally, as human beings, we, we could have communicated a, a lot better. But we were young, you know. Um, and uh, we, we got married at 23, which seems young to me now. And... You know, at that age, you bring a lot, lot of baggage with you. So, so you have to really uh, work with each other to stay married, to develop into a, a proper relationship. And, and in some ways, we did that. In some ways, we didn't. Mm -hmm. The love of songwriting does come through. And, and the book includes uh, an appendix of some of the lyrics uh, of the songs that you reference throughout the book. So that made me wonder, um, why, why choose for the title of uh, your first memoir? Maybe, maybe first of several, who knows, but maybe the last, Beeswing. Why, why Beeswing? Well, I think that's a song uh, that looks back to the 60s and 70s. I mean, I, I wrote it, when did I write it? Probably the 90s. Uh, but it seems to look back, at, and it, for me, it, it encapsulates some of the spirit of, of that decade, mm -hmm. uh, when a lot of people that I knew did not take the path well-traveled. So they, they, they dropped out of school, they dropped out of university, they became hippies, you know, they lived on communes, you know, they became drug dealers in some cases. Uh, but but they, they definitely did not want to follow their parents' way of life. I was 19 when I came to town, they called it the summer of love. They were burning babies, burning flags, the hawks against the doves. And for me, you know, the 60s was a big watershed, really, in terms of, of generations in, in the UK. Uh, you know, Monty Python was almost like the, the final nail in the coffin of, of the establishment, <laughs> where you could make fun then of anybody. 
you know, you, yeah. you, you didn't have to hold back at the Queen, you didn't have to hold back at judges, you didn't have to hold back at the police or politicians. You could actually lampoon anybody. And, mm-hmm. and, and that was very refreshing. And, and that was almost, uh, you know, dragging Britain forwards into the 20th century in some ways. So, you know, Britain had been uh, held back in, in Victorian Britain for so long. You know, you know um, really, the, the model was from about, you know, 1890, uh, that, that we were still living in the 50s. So when the 60s came, it was like this breath of fresh air for the younger generation. Uh, and suddenly in the 60s, you had all this uh, youth culture. You had, um, you know, David Bailey and Twiggy and, uh, you know, the Avengers TV series. And, and you had uh, Richard Hamilton and Peter Blake doing pop art and uh, and the Beatles, you know, and, and then mm-hmm. the Stones and, the, you know, the whole musical door opened. And to be in London at that time was extraordinary. Even though Fairport weren't the first generation where we were kind of the next musical generation after the Stones and the Kinks, you know, and the Yardbirds. So we were kind of five years down the road. And, um, but we're still at the center of everything, at the center of world culture in many ways. So that was a fantastic experience um, to, to be alive at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing that I can say about uh, you in comparison to a lot of your peers from that era is that you're still making really good records consistently. I realize it doesn't put you in the greatest position to answer that question about, you know, assess, <laughs> assess why that is. But why is that, Richard? <laughs> why is that? Um, yeah. I don't know. I think it's a combination of things. Musical curiosity means I want to see what, what's around the next band. So, so I, w- I want to write that next song and see where that takes me. I, you know, I, I want to write something that no one's written before. Mm-hmm. So that kind of drives me forward. Or if I'm not writing songs, maybe I want to write, you know, a musical play or something. I want to do something that pushes me forward. So I'm kind of pulling myself forward, but at the same time, I'm, I'm driven by, uh, I think, demons. You know, I, I, I think uh, demons from the past uh, kind of kind of drive me onwards. It's the Charlie Parker thing, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, and if I got psychoanalyzed, maybe I'd stop making music altogether because then I'd be sane and normal and happy. On a birthday cake How did I get to figure you so wrong If I touch you now I might get a frostbite We've gone from so warm To so long Do you think, Richard, to some extent I don't mean this to sound insulting uh, You've never been popular enough to burn out Right? You've always, you're the consummate cult artist, you know? <laughs> you know, there were never, you don't have the dilemma of, are we going to do 60 arenas on this tour or just 45? <laughs> well, um, that, that, that's a luxury I could handle, actually. I, I think I, really? I, 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 I can manage that. <laughs> but how about the, how about the dilemma of like playing the same 15 songs every night because, you know, 60,000 people expect to hear your, your greatest hits and they don't want to know about the new stuff that you're doing. Yeah, that could possibly get very boring, uh, actually, couldn't it? Um, you do hear Keith Richards grouse about it. You know, you just know when in his honest moments, he'll say, I never have to play Brown Sugar again. Yeah, uh, that must be uh, frustrating and <laughs> going through the motions in many ways. Um, yeah, yeah but, but having said that, uh, I've got songs that I play most nights uh, and I play them yeah. maybe for 30 years um, and I still find something in them. If the song's good enough, you, you can reinterpret it forever, 
forever. See, yeah, I knew you know, that. Yeah. Richard Thompson's been waiting to sell out his whole career. That paragraph <laughs> where he writes about the first trip to America and the record company sent the two stretch limos. Yeah. And is only disillusioned later, six months later, when he finds out that they went on his budget. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But there was something there, Richard, and ooh, I'm in a stretch limo. Well, yeah, it was uh, it was impressive for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Well, we loved it. Well, we just thought well, we'd arrived. You know, we thought this is great. Um, gosh, you know what what nice people they are at the record company. <laughs> uh, when they invite you out to dinner, and then you find out they've billed it to you later. Yeah, right yeah, on. it's well, classic. It's classic stuff. Absolutely classic. It's, it's, it's encouraging to know that the same kid at 17 who said, you know, I don't want to do that Chicago blues thing because everybody else is doing it. It's still the same guy. It sounds like you're still, everybody's going right, I'm going left. Well, you know, I always wanted to be different. I always wanted to be a musical pioneer, in whatever that meant, you know, in, in whatever field. And uh, in Ashley and Simon, I found people who were kind of like-minded. Um, you know, we all wanted to be different. You know, we're very idealistic about music. And... Um, thought a lot about the kind of music we wanted to play. So mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, Fairport's approach was never an accident. I, I think we, we fell in to some wonderful situations. Uh, you know, being part of the psychedelic scene propelled us forwards, which was uh, something uh, that was, was beyond our control. But, but, but certainly uh, we were very thoughtful about the musical style. And I think that has uh, stood us in good stead over the years. Well, we have been talking to the uh, one and only Henry the Human Fly, a.k.a. Richard Thompson, author. I think Linda's question has been answered. You are as good a songwriter as you are a yeah, book writer. I think she was satisfied. Well, uh, well, um, sorry, I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we've written some books. We know how hard it is. Not nearly as much fun as gigging with the band, but you couldn't gig. You That's know? true. You've That's been true. stuck at home for a while. Yep. Thank you, Richard, for being on Sound Opinions a second time. Thank you so much. That wraps up our splendid chat with Richard Thompson, and now we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite song of his or Fairport Convention or Richard and Linda? Leave us a message on our website, soundopinions.org. Also, stay tuned for our upcoming bonus podcast with some great outtakes from our interview with Richard. Greg, uh, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we've got an in-depth conversation with Yola, who just put out one of the year's best albums, in both of our opinions. And uh, for our bonus podcast, I took a trip to the desert island to pay tribute to Dusty Hill, the great bassist of ZZ Top, whom we just lost, and play a song from him that I cannot live without. A worthy topic, Greg. To take our Sound Opinions survey, you've only got one more week. Go to soundopinions.org. The link will be on our homepage. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our intern, Sol Delgadillo, and we get social media help from Katie Cotton. 